I think the people of this country have had enough of experts. The science is If you count the legal votes, I easily win. It is time to take the bricks down. This candle smells like my vagina. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. What the fuck is going on? Hello, I'm Mark Steele. Welcome to my podcast, where each week I ask the question, what the fuck? Is going on. What the fuck is going on? This week, I shed a tear of happiness, as I'm sure all of you who are properly proud of British did, when the government said it was bringing back pounds and ounces and pints and inches and proper British measurements, because I am sick of having to use foreign ones. For example, do you know what I found in my house this week? A centipede. I said, we voted to get rid of you, you metric traitor. I chucked it on a ferry to Calais and replaced it with an inchipede. Boris Johnson proved how much he loves his country with this announcement because Boris has his finger on the pulse of the common man. That's why he pays £840 for a yard of wallpaper, not a metre, because he's one of us common people. I bet when he bought his cocaine that he said he'd bought, he was patriotic and asked for a 17th of an ounce, not a gram. So now we're certain to have a winter to remember that we can all be proud of because the shelves will be empty, but they'll be empty of pounds of apples, not kilos of apples. And now there are no foreign workers to pick our fruit. It means acres of land will be covered in rotten strawberries, not square kilometres. It's beautiful. And at the next Olympics, our athletes aren't going to run in metres. They're going to run 100 yards and then stop. And the same with the divers. They're not going to dive 10 metres. They're going to dive 10 yards and then they'll stop six inches above the water because they're British and we've got our measurements back. And our measurements make sense. Not like these complicated metric measurements. Oh, 100 divided by 10. There's 16 ounces to a pound. 14 pounds to a stone, 8 stone to a hundredweight, and 20 hundredweight to a tonne. That's why it's called a hundredweight, because there's 20 of them. It's obvious, isn't it? So from now on, if you drink a litre of water, you'll have Ramona painted on your front door. And every year on Pints and Gallons Day, you'll be made to walk through Ian Duncan Smith Avenue dressed as a Belgian while citizens throw fireworks at you, which won't be deemed dangerous because health and safety laws will all have been burnt in a ceremony shown live on BBC One and hosted by Sir Ian Botham. And then we can add a new verse to the national anthem to commemorate this glorious day that can go, If you're from an EU court or some poxy Baltic port, your verdict counts for naught, cos we're British and we fought for the freedom to deport any filthy stinking salt who tries to sell some ham by the dirty rotten gram rather than in ounces like my dear old granddad taught. Because at last, we've got our country back. We've got nearly blue passports, which is a British colour. Nearly blue. Not like those treacherous red passports that the EU never made us have, but people said we did. Because nearly blue is our colour. That's why our post boxes are nearly blue. Buses, nearly blue. What colour's our flag? Nearly blue, white and blue. But there's even more good news. Ex-Minister John Whittingdale told the Royal Television Society that broadcasters must make more British programmes. Yes, because for too long the BBC has been full of programmes that are foreign. Songs of Praise is mostly Swedish. 
Antiques Roadshow is nothing but propaganda for Islamic fundamentalism. Now, Channel 4's Naked Attraction, in which the competitors are all naked, is fine. But the contestants every week should be Jeff Hurst, Dame Judi Dench and Virginia Wade to promote Britain. And John Whittingdale should host a show called The Even Greater Great British Bake Off of Great Britain in which the contestants have to bake a Queen Victoria sponge out of chalk from the White Cliffs of Dover. And if anyone measures the ingredients in grams, then they're waterboarded with a gallon of water. And instead of the Eurovision Song Contest, we'll have the British Song Contest. And it will just be Britain's entry called We Will Fight Them on the Beaches by the Winston Churchill Tribute Band, sung 32 times. And yet somehow Britain will still get no points. But it will be no points. The proper British measurement, not no points. And then there'll be a place in the sun where every day the presenter says, Norman and Eileen don't even want to look at anywhere in Spain because they can't stand the idea of having cakes for breakfast instead of bacon. In all of this, we should, of course, recognise that it has been a very, very sad week for the Prime Minister, who lost his mum, and whatever you think of him, you have to feel sympathy for the fact that his mother is now six feet under. That's six feet! Feet! Not two metres! Six feet! Now, over the last few weeks, I have been very lucky to have all manner of marvellous people who have investigated, along with me, the question, what the fuck is going on? But this week, I am blessed, because who better could possibly examine this question than Mr Mark Lamar, quiz show host, comic extraordinaire. I like to think of myself as retired extraordinaire. What, you've retired from being extraordinary? No, I'm extraordinarily retired. <laughs> because yeah. I don't have anything to live up to then. Like, if you do, oh, yeah, you used to read all tours and everything like that, then I've got loads to live up to. But if I go, yeah, I just wake up and watch telly and then go back to bed, people won't expect too much. OK, in that case, I'll do it again. <laughs> With us over the last few weeks, I've been extraordinarily lucky to have all manner of marvellous people examine what the fuck is going on. But with us this week is someone who's really done fuck all for <laughs> fucking ages. It was only that the Samaritan said, please find him something to do, otherwise we don't know what's going to happen. Mark Lamar. Yeah, that's better. That's much better. I keep wandering into their offices. Someone has to show me which bus to get home. <laughs> so, the first thing that I've got to ask you, Mark, you know, now you're a person who is from an indeterminate class background. It's very hard to tell. <laughs> Some people think that you're from humble stock. And many people have believed you to be from the aristocracy. And in fact, I do recall at one point, it was said that you were third in line to the throne. That's like an old joke your nan would say. Isn't it? Oh, I was third in line to the throne. There were two people in the queue in front of me. Remember yeah. when old people used to call the toilet the throne? Yes. And I'm with them on that, aren't you? Yes. Do you know when people talk about dad jokes? I don't like that phrase. I hate dad jokes. I hate. I don't hate dad jokes. I quite like them. But I hate the phrase. I hate mansplaining. I hate dad dancing. They're like a weird sort of neutering. Yes. Although I've got to say, the best 90 minutes of my life was when a girlfriend asked me what mansplaining meant once. <laughs> It might have been two hours. It was almost worth it. <laughs> but no, all of those things, they're like, you know, we're, trying to, we're all trying to build an equal society, not one where we look down on anyone for anything. 
And I don't like these kind of niggles. Yeah. I liked it when I was a kid and my dad tried a joke. I'd say, oh, dad, can I have a Milky Way? And he'd go, you'll need to go to space. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. That's what I tell my daughter worse jokes than that. <laughs> and sometimes she laughs and it's fantastic. Yeah. I remember when my son, who is now part of this podcast, and he must have been, I don't know, six months old. And every night I'd sort of go in and you know, I'd say good night to him and stuff. And they, he had these pink elephants on the wall next to his cot. And I used to say, yeah, they're camp elephants. And then I'd do this camp elephant noise, a sort of, ah, mm, ah. And that was my camp elephant noise. And he would go, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> And for about a month, this was the bit I used to look forward to this all day. The, my favourite bit of the day was going, <laughs> yeah. it's like, night, night, ah. <laughs> the camp elephants. <laughs> and then one night I did it and he just looked at me with this expression like, you fucking wanker. And I thought, oh, that material's no good anymore. Yeah, that, I only got away with it 8,000 times. <laughs> <laughs> when you say camp elephants, do you mean camp as in YMCA or do you mean camp as in there's a camp of elephants? No, I mean camp as in YMCA. Are you allowed to even say things are camp anymore? Oh no, what have I done? I'm cancelled now, I'm with you, I'm going to be ex-extraordinary. Yeah, I mean I kind of cancelled myself before anyone else got a chance to. Oh. But I don't know, I mean that's, that's a thing about being us of a certain age and everything. I'm really not aware. There was, I sometimes have to look up phrases... I'm not even going to say the phrase I looked up this week to, to see if it was offensive, <laughs> and it turns out it was. And I didn't mean it. And I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't say it out loud, but it turned out it was. And I thought, oh, okay, that's good. I educated myself and found out. Yeah. But we live in a world where your class background, sometimes you can't help feeling that it has an impact upon you. Now, we get used to this, but we shouldn't get used to it. Jacob Rees-Mogg, this week... He said, talking about COVID and face masks in the House of Commons, he said the Labour Party would have less to complain about with regard to face masks if they worked a bit harder. And this is the sort of thing, it seems to me, that when you're very posh, you can say, and people sort of automatically think, oh, well, I'm sure it makes sense. But that's just mad, isn't it? I think, one, posh people can just say anything because people go, oh, they're just posh, they just say things, it doesn't matter. If we said certain things, we'd be arrested, they would be eccentric, and that's the way it goes. Yes. But, you know, in the same way that he can't empathise with me growing up with the council estate in Swindon, I can't... I try, but I can't empathise with a man who grew up with a magical nanny. No. So I have no, no idea what goes on in his mind. No, no, no. I have no idea what goes on in his mind. But the difference is that he gets to inherit 45 million quid and just do whatever he fancies, whether it's be in the cabinet or whatever he wants. But when he was a kid, which you probably aren't taking into account, his dad, and I think he said this in a speech, when my dad was out of work, he got on his penny farthing and looked for work. <laughs> There's one for the teenagers. <laughs> I, I won't even cite the reference there. <laughs> Speaking of which, have I, have I ever told you that Jeremy Vine cycles round Chiswick on a penny farthing? No. Yes, absolutely. Oh, no, he doesn't. He does, and he has those, you know, the mounted cameras to make sure that all the kids in Chiswick don't line up to phlegm down the back of his jacket. <laughs> but, um, no, he, he absolutely does, because he hates to be seen out. <laughs> so that's obviously his way of not being noticed, to be a bit above everyone else. <laughs> 
He genuinely. I'm not making this up. Farthing. He genuinely cycles around on a penny farthing. I think you're making it up. That's okay. I don't, I'm happy for it to be such a comical image. <laughs> it's a true thing that happens on my streets that if you think it's such a comical image, I'd rather you believed I was making it up. <laughs> I'll tell you what, though, same thing. I live in Crystal Palace and Cheryl Baker from Bucks Fizz drives round and round here in a hovercraft. <laughs> now I want to believe that's true. Engelbert Umperding every morning is at WH Smith's round here in a Zeppelin. <laughs> Hanging from a pterodactyl. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's something that's very close to your world. Cheryl Tweedy. Mm. This is the story. I'm sure you're aware of it. She has been hosting an R&B show. It has been said in the newspapers that this has caused an absolute storm because a number of prominent people have said she shouldn't be hosting an R&B show on the radio because there are many black people who should have been doing it rather than a white person from her sort of musical background, if you can call mm. it a musical background. Now, where are you with this thing? Well, I'm sure you're very well aware you're asking a man who hosted a reggae show for 12 years on national radio. Exactly. So I think the problem isn't, for me, it isn't with the colour of her skin, but the content of her character and the fact that she's not a broadcaster. I think that, oh, I suppose she is, isn't she? It doesn't really bother me. And I think they did shoot themselves in the foot a little bit. But on the other hand, we all know how showbiz works and she's famous and pretty and she's got a recognisable voice and name. And uh, I'm sorry I'm not adding any comedy to this, but... (laughs) But I, I, it doesn't it doesn't particularly bother me. And also, there are lots of other R&B shows on mm. that are staffed by more intelligent, better broadcasters who care more about their subject. Go and listen to them. Wait, I'm with you on this. And I, I had to actually, one day this week, I had to, I, I should really thank Heart FM. And I didn't think I would normally be a big fan of Heart FM, but I was on this occasion because I was in a cafe and Heart FM was on. And it was so fucking horrible that I put my headphones on and listened to Laura Marlin and heard a new couple of Laura Marlin tracks I'd never heard before. So, uh, you know, Heart FM do make a contribution to music. <laughs> Here's a thing. Uh, one day I put Dusty Springfield on. Then... I took my headphones off to leave and Dusty Springfield was on Heart FM. Oh, where does that leave you? Well, I'll tell you where it leaves me. I still would have been annoyed at Dusty Springfield being played <laughs> by Heart FM, even if it was at the exact track at the exact same time, <laughs> because they were playing Dusty Springfield for the wrong reason. I think that is an absolutely valid response. <laughs> and the one that I expected from you. And it'll be the response of people listening to Cheryl... What's her name now, actually? It's not Cheryl Cole or Cheryl Tweedy, is it? I don't mean that name. Um, But yes, we're not going to listen to it, are we? No. But now, there's an issue that you want to raise, I'm told. Yes, there is an issue I want to raise, and I think it's a very current thing. Right. Because I've got a five-year-old kid, and recently I've been flicking through the tales of this idiot Hans Christian Andersen. Have you heard of him? I know Hans Christian Andersen. I know quite a bit about him because I heard a radio programme about him. Did you? Right. Okay. Was he an idiot? No. Because his stories are horrible and they're useless. They're about half a paragraph long. A little girl, she hasn't got any money and she dies of hyperthermia. And that's it. There's one about a tin soldier who gets swallowed by a fish and then ends up in a fire. And it's a love story, apparently. The soldier and the ballerina both get burnt to death in Mm. a fire. That's a Danish love story. And then there's this Thumbelina one about this tiny little girl who hangs about with moles and cockchafers. I didn't even get any further than cockchafers in that story. (laughs) But the one that's really got me recently is, you know the story of the princess and the pea? 
Yes, that's him, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, that's him. And the moral of this story. So there's a woman. She's a princess. She she gets mm. caught out in the rain somewhere. She knocks on a castle door. Yeah. They say come in, which is very nice. And she says, I'm a princess. And they go, yeah, right. Are you really? And she goes, yeah, I'm not going to fall for that. I'm not going to say no, am I? And then they say, right, mm. we're going to do, we'll do a test for you because I'm a queen and my son's a prince and he really wants to marry a, he has to marry a princess and we need a princess. So we're going to put you in this room and they put her in this room and they build a bed of 20 mattresses and on yeah. top of the bed, there's 20 eider downs. Yes. And she goes up and sleeps in that bed and they've secreted a pee underneath the bottom mattress and everything. And the next morning, they say to her, oh, how did you sleep last night? And she goes, oh, jeez, it was I'm black and blue. I think that's actually the phrase in the story. Right. I'm black and blue. Now, if a woman came to your house in the middle of the night you've never <laughs> met, you've, put, you've made like the greatest bed of all time. And she says, oh, I didn't sleep well. She would add my footprint on her ass within a few seconds out the door. And if anyone thinks that I'm trying to condone violence against women, I am against this one fictional woman from 200 years ago. <laughs> it gets worse. It gets... So they didn't even say, how did you sleep? And you go, well, my nose was hitting the ceiling quite a lot because you don't need that many mattresses for a start. She didn't say... Oh, it was five in the morning. I had to climb down three sets of ladders to have a piss. She's moaning about a pee. And rather than anyone else going, oh, Jesus, what have we got here? The prince marries her. Yeah. He doesn't for one second go, well, she's a little bit high maintenance, this one. He goes, no, I'm going to make that. This is somehow the moral of the story. And I think... The moral of that story, there is a point to this, believe me, <laughs> maybe I'll get there at some point. <laughs> there is a point to this, but the moral of the story is to appear and act entitled and you will be rewarded. Oh. And I think everyone today, not everyone today, but a lot of people today, and I think the social milieu of the time and when the sociology books were written in 50 years' time, I think people will look back on this time as, wow, that was a time when everyone... Rather than having a night, you know, just going, oh, I didn't sleep as well as I could, but thank you very much. Mm. Everyone's just going, I had 20 fucking mattresses, but there was a pee. I've slept on mattresses with actual pee on and not complained. But see, I think the darkness of that, right, when my son was um, seven, eight, this really is, God, if I actually told these stories at the time, he'd have been whipped away by social services with a cam belly from one hand is. But, <laughs> right. When he was seven, I went to South Africa and I brought him a little book of short stories and I came back. And Hold I on. You went to yeah. South Africa? Were you on a camp elephant safari at the time? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I only went yeah. to South Africa to kill gay elephants. I'm absolutely fine on this one. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, the photos I took of myself, they got deleted from Twitter and never found. Now, I bought this book, right? So, book of short stories. And I was reading through the... Uh, so, the first night was back, and I was sort of reading his story. And the story was that all the animals were hibernating, and they all made a huge, great mountain of nuts for when the hibernation ended, because they knew that they were going to wake up really hungry, and they were going to need these nuts. But the hare didn't hibernate. The hare got up every night and had some of these nuts... Knowing that someone would be blamed for stealing the nuts, he put all the little bits of shell around the gazelle. So all the animals woke up and they went, oh, Christ, I'm bloody busting for a nut. I'm famished after all that hibernating. Went over to where the nuts should be. No nuts. The hare said, look, all the shells around the gazelle. And the animals went, 
bloody gazelle, you stole all the nuts. The hippo says, no, I woke up one night and I saw the hare eating the nuts and he put the shells around the gazelle to make it look like it was the gazelle who's guilty. And I'm reading the story and I thought, all right, we've come to one sentence from the end. And then the last sentence in the book was, and so all the other animals got a stick each and beat the hare to death. (laughs) That's how Hans Christian Anderson should... Isn't that exactly the same as my foot up the princess's arse? (laughs) I suppose so. But then he thought this was so funny. So from then on, we just always, whatever the story was, you know, I'd go, Beatrix Potter, Peter Rabbit ate a radish. And oh, naughty Peter Rabbit, said Mr McGregor. And he beat Peter Rabbit to death and then he would laugh and laugh and laugh and that still actually that still does work if we oh, still do that. That is my next bedtime story for my daughter <laughs> about anything. No more Paw Patrol. They've all been beaten to death. <laughs> Thank you so much. I feel so much more enlightened as to what the fuck is going on. <laughs> Mr Mark Mark. Now, the latest series of RuPaul's Drag Race starts this week, and like most of you, I can't wait. But I have to admit, I don't know as much about drag as I should. Luckily, we have with us someone who is an expert, fortunately recovered from his recent hamstring injury, George Galloway. Let me put it to you, RuPaul. Your ostentatious pageantry and dilettante plumage enacted for tabloid entertainment, trivialises and traduces the artistic endeavour of men dressing as ladies, your inexplicable elevation of contestant Bemini Bomboulash demeans the noble tradition of drag most eloquently expressed by the revolutionary Ho Chi Minh when he addressed the heroic Viet Cong freedom fighters combating US imperialism while wearing fishnet stockings, high-heeled stilettos with micro-bladed eyebrows and Anastasia Beverly Hills Amrezi highlighter. That, RuPaul, if that is indeed your real name, is why I shall not be setting a series link for the latest drag race. Though I may watch the highlights on catch up. The magnificent Emma Raducanu has achieved one of the most astonishing feats in British sporting history at 18. From nowhere. The government needs to reprimand us severely. This is not the British way. Andy Murray did it properly. He put us through four years of agony, losing four finals and all them semi-finals before eventually winning in 2012. He didn't do any of this straight from A-levels to champion without losing a set in the whole tournament nonsense. I hope he called her straight after a victory in New York to say, Um, hi, Emma. Yeah, no, you did okay, but, um... To learn to torture your supporters more. Now, I love tennis, but Britain has a very, very strange relationship with this sport. Emma Raducanu was the first British woman to win a Grand Slam since Virginia Wade in 1977, and Murray was the first British man to win since 1936. 
but our only modern men's champion was disliked by many people. I watched his last Grand Slam final against the Serb Novak Djokovic when I was in a pub with one other bloke watching it. And towards the end, I said, he's losing, isn't he? And this bloke went, good, I hate him. I said, what? He said, yeah, well, he don't support England, does he? I said, well, nor does Djokovic, he supports Serbia. He said, I don't care, I hate him. I can't stand him. I love watching him lose. I'd come in here and watch him lose every day. I hate him. I said, what makes you hate him like that? He went, well, he's miserable, isn't he? But for the tennis establishment, the dislike of Murray came from a different place. So when he first emerged, there was an article in the Daily Telegraph that said, Murray will never make us swoon because we like Tim Henman's home county stiffness far more than the cursing aggression of this young man. Because that's what makes great champions, home county stiffness. This is what links Tiger Woods, Cristiano Ronaldo, Usain Bolt, Billie Jean King. They were all brought up within five miles of Guildford. Mohammed Ali was from Hemel Hempstead and would often boast, I float like an accountant and sting rather like a sales director for fitted kitchen units. And then we were told that Murray can't be popular because he curls his lip when he wins a point. What a disgrace. True tennis stars, if they wish to express joy at such moments, write a letter to the announcement page of the Times. And many of the people who disliked Andy Murray preferred Tim Henman. Now, Tim Henman was a fine player. He seems like a decent bloke, but his appeal for these people was he represented their Britain of perfect lawns and the Chelsea Flower Show and Cliff Richard. Don't go near to the housing estate, darling. You'll come back smelling of fish fingers and buses and ITV. And British tennis isn't supposed to be for these communists. And it's got worse. In 2012, there were 33,000 public tennis courts. But a study in 2017 found... There were 7,149 tennis courts in parks in Great Britain. And even they look like they've been hit by an American drone strike covered in potholes on each side, so the only way to move up to the net is in a JCB. And the net droops like a curtain in a house that's been abandoned since the junkies sold the floorboard and they're behind a huge metal padlocked door with a massive sign to welcome you with a charming poem that goes if you don't pay you can't play and these snobbish attitudes go back a long way the most successful british tennis player ever was fred perry who won eight grand slams and he was from stockport his dad was a cotton spinner and a trade union organizer who stood as labor candidate in the 1924 election and when fred was 15 he'd moved to london he wanted to enter the annual schoolboys tournament at the prestigious Queen's Club, but he was the only entrant who wasn't a private school. So in his memoirs, he wrote... When I arrived, I was asked for my name and school, and when I said Perry, Ealing Grammar, the commissioner said, I beg your pardon? Well, there's nowhere for you to change, so I had to change on the floor. The first time he won Wimbledon was against an Australian, Jack Crawford, which must have been the most glorious British triumph. But Fred describes the moments after winning when he went for a bath in the dressing room. I overheard the Wimbledon club chairman talking to Crawford. Sorry, said the chairman to Jack. This was an occasion when the best man didn't win. He gave a bottle of champagne to Jack and when I came out of the bath, my winner's tie was on the floor. I've never been so angry in my life. And it's not much better now in some tennis clubs. They say to a young player, uh, you've got a very good serve and your volleys are splendid. But um, you need to work on your background. I mean, your father's a painter and decorator and you can't really expect to compete at a decent level unless you improve that part of your game. So, I mean, maybe come back and see us again when he's a diplomat or a barrister. So we're lucky, despite all of that, 
to have this new champion. And Emma Raducanu's prize money was £1.8 million. So if she wins a couple more tournaments, she could be the only teenager in London who could afford to put a deposit on a flat. What the fuck is going on? This week, Therese Coffey, a government minister, answered a question about universal credit, which is shortly to be cut by £20 a week. Now, she caused a fair bit of outrage when she said it's only two hours extra work. In particular, there was this woman who I heard on a radio phone-in. Jeremy, sick of it. I mean, I didn't know we were giving out this universal credit. Once we're giving out free money to everyone in the universe, who's next? Just because someone in another galaxy can't be bothered to spend an extra two hours a week delivering pizzas to one of their moons. And some of these microbes that live on asteroids are so basic, they don't even get out of bed. They just swan around the cosmos on an intergalactic cruise for billions of years. And I'm paying for them. I couldn't even get a week in Newquay. Oh, I'm sick of it. Where's it going to end? I was watching a programme with Brian Cox the other day and he was saying there could be an infinite number of parallel universes. Will we have to pay for all of them as well? A parallel universal credit? No wonder the local council can't fix the loose paving signs in front of Matalan. Oh, I'm sick of it, Jeremy. I'm sick of it. Oh, what the fuck is going on? One of the joys of my week is when people send in messages and questions to the What the Fuck is Going On Twitter account. For example, Meg Studman from Florida, I think I've pronounced your name right, Meg, but I will uh, not know if I have, says, there is a ban in Florida on school masks. What the fuck is going on with that? That does sound incredible. A ban on school. You're not allowed to wear school masks. How are people... Like, and it's, if you wore another sort of mask, like if you sort of said, well, I'm only going to, I'm going to go skiing. No, well, all right, you're not allowed to wear, I'm going to be a burglar. You're not all right, but you're not allowed to, I'm going to be a member of the continuity IRA, blowing up bits of Tampa Bay and Jacksonville. Okay, as long as you don't wear a mask. She also suggests many of us are ready to cut Florida adrift into the Atlantic. And she then adds, I put it to you, Mark Steele. I wonder who should keep me channelling there. TMC Goldie says, It's bold of you to assume that your Radio 4 audience knows what the fuck is going on with Twitter. Well, TMC Goldie, I think that's a little bit unfair. I think soon the chipping forecast will be on Twitter. They'll have to get the whole thing in 280 characters. And if they can't fit it in, then anyone in Finisterre, which has gone over the limit, or just after capsize. Steve Battlemuch says, very kindly, your podcast was very funny as usual, but this week's was about how useless Gavin Williamson was, and two days later he was sacked. This week, can you do Grant Shaps? Well, Steve, that's a brilliant suggestion. I think rather than do Grant Shaps, if this is a superpower that I've suddenly adopted without knowing... Wouldn't that be a brilliant thing? Like, whoever we do on the podcast that week is sacked two days later. That would put Superman in the shade. The amazing sack podcast man. And um, be played by Robert Downey Jr. in a film. What the fuck is going on? Now, it would be even harder to find out what the fuck is going on if you only mixed with people of your own age. And so, luckily, I bred somebody who can try and help me out finding out what is going on in the world. Mr. Elliot Steele, welcome. Hello. Now, 
Here's something that I think my generation needs to know about your generation. Now, I didn't even know this myself until a few minutes before we started doing this, but it turns out the party conferences have started. Is this something that your generation has been following closely? Are you all on top of the fact that the Liberal Democrats are currently having their conference? No, we've all been focused on Nicki Minaj. Is she standing for the Liberal Democrats in any capacity? No, but she started getting involved in UK politics. Right, this is Nicki Minaj when she was talking about the vaccine, wasn't she? Yeah, she said that her cousin's mate in Trinidad took the vaccine and now he's got massive testicles. And then she started calling like Keir Starmer a boring fuck and stuff. Oh, did she? Yeah. What, is that because he was not agreeing with her about the huge testicles issue? I don't know. I've just seen her every now and then. She just tweets something absolutely mental. She put a thing out pretending to be from like Oxford and that. She went to school with Margaret Thatcher, she was saying. She said she went to school with Margaret Thatcher? Yes, yes. she's just going nuts. But uh, the Liberal Democrats, they're so lame. We don't know that this is going on because no one pays attention to them. Well, someone must do. They will think they will. They'll come out of the conference going, I think it did really well. I think we really presented a positive front in the media and I think that our policy on road planning is really really going to help us win a couple of seats in Hertfordshire they will think they have done well with it I don't know anything about them really but nobody does right well they probably know a little bit about themselves no they don't no no one knows about them (laughs) nobody pays attention to these party conferences what is the point in them what are they doing? They're just having a meeting. They're just gathering. I know the Labour one's in Brighton. Yeah, the Labour one's in Brighton, yeah. That's about yeah. as much as I know about it, because I was there once when it was in Brighton. Oh, right. Did you meet anyone? No, I didn't give a, who gives a fuck. What am I going to do? Go over there and talk to them about their, what they're going to do about, yeah. you know, reforming Merva Tidfield. I think this is really encouraging to know that the younger generation are so engaged with the political process. Couldn't give a shit. There'll be a couple of nerds who do. The rest of us, we have Call of Duty. <laughs> One of the world's biggest pop stars is currently tweeting that her cousin's mate's balls are about to explode and is now single-handedly doing more for UK politics than the opposition has. Why am I going to pay attention to the party conferences when nothing happens? I went to one once and something happened. I wrote a joke once for Jeremy Corbyn when he was doing a speech. I got rung up the night before and they said... Can you write a couple of jokes for Jeremy Corbyn? I wrote a couple of jokes. Was it two Jews going to a bar? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it caused so much trouble. I regret it a little bit now, to be honest. Well, I, I think it's absolutely enlightening and so encouraging that the younger generation is so much a part of the political process. And I think it's a great sign for the for the future. Thank you very much. It was an unusual edition of Newsnight. I offered absolutely nothing on that. I don't know. People probably do pay attention to it. I don't know. No, don't go back on it. Stick to your guns. What are you going to learn? Yeah, but what are you going to learn? I just don't understand what's the point of them. What are you going to learn? Yeah, well, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's, it's all part of my generation's understanding towards what young people think. I'm sure that any Liberal Democrat listening will have been very, very encouraged by the impact that they're having. Thank you so much, Elliot Steele. What the fuck is going on? Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you've liked it, please subscribe, rate it, and if you can be bothered, write a review. And as I say every week, if you can't be bothered, that's even more reason to write a review. If there's anything at all that you think I should be finding out what the fuck is going on with it, then please send me a message on Twitter, at Mr. Mark Steele, and we will look at all the messages that you sent. 
I'll be on tour soon, on a sort of tour with all the shows that are being sort of rescheduled after they were all cancelled 18 months ago for some reason. But what the fuck is going on was hosted by me, Mark Steele, with my guests Mark Lamar and Elliot Steele. Voices by Sarah Alexander and Pete Sinclair. It was written by Mark Steele, James Serafinowicz and Pete Sinclair. Music by Willie Dowling. It was produced and edited by Scott and Matt at Podmonkey. What the fuck is going on is a co-production between Podmonkey and Consec Industries.